This is season three of the Broke Architect Podcast. This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. Should you wish to sponsor this podcast, please contact me at globalarchitectalliance.com. You know, there's room for architects to continue to specialize and kind of expand the bounds of how architects practice, how they assert their agency. The opportunity to creatively locate it on a barge that can move to different catchment areas. And so that's something that we did. Kind of think the education system in America would do well by uh, disclosing kind of return on investment for various degrees. Where I was one of probably very few in the country that, you know, came out with a check from the school, kind of making money during school. And so that uh, mentality for me was that I, I didn't want to be in debt. I wanted to get ahead. I didn't want to make decisions on finances early in my career that, um, you know, sacrifice or, or um, compromise those early experiences that I was able to invest in myself and in my career. Surprise and, and oftentimes disappointment, kind of the lack of an architect in the room and how I'm not knocking engineers or engineers, you know, they have their place in this world and it's a very important place, but the problem solving isn't the same as, um, you know, architects ability to foresee and design for an experiential quality. And I've, I've also, you know, worked in the Middle East where I was working with a culture that didn't value women as equals and wouldn't look a woman in the eye, wouldn't take orders from a woman. And what I have focused on is that, you know, we don't see profit just in terms of money, but in terms of, you know, our human capital, we invest in our people, we're looking to retain individuals for the long term and not have a revolving door. And so that the sooner we are able to kind of adopt and adapt to the technological world and leverage its tools, the better not only we will be as a profession for it, but the, the greater impact we will have on the public, which is you know ultimately the end user of, of who we're serving. I have with me today Dena Prestos, who is an architect and owns a female-owned agency called Indigo River. Now, as well as this, she is a futurist with transdisciplinary and progressive views. Born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska, Dana has a deep-rooted appreciation for nature and mankind's ability to design and build and create infrastructure in some of the world's toughest conditions. And she has led projects around the world, conducted heavy civil construction, marine engineering and waterfront architecture. And Dena's unique experiences helped shape her vision, competency and progressive views to ultimately launch her own firm. Now, Indigo River specializes in resiliency consulting with a specific focus on the waterfront. Well, the water flood prone areas and progressive responses to sea level rise. And Dana has completed a five-year Bachelor's of Architecture program at New Jersey Institute of Technology and a graduate degree in civil engineering. Pretty impressive. And after gaining valuable experience in the industry, Dana has completed Harvard Business School's leading professional executive education program. And Dana also resides in New York metro area with her husband, Nick, where they enjoy restoring their 160-year-old riverfront home, playing tennis and sailing the Hudson, 
Pretty impressive stuff. Firstly, Denna, welcome to the third series of the Brock Architect podcast. And I just want to ask, how are you today? Thank you, Jason, and thank you for having me. I'm I'm doing well. Thanks. A rainy day here in New York, but always pleasant to uh, get online with you and chat. Wonderful. And I ask this question of really everyone. If you can tell me a little bit more about your background, where you grew up, we've mentioned Alaska, but also why you wanted to study architecture. Absolutely. I so I did grow up in Anchorage, Alaska, and I was there until I finished high school. When I was in elementary school, I believe we had a, a school-wide project. The the school was undergoing a design process and construction, and there was a, a initiative to involve the students in that process. And so all of the students were uh, wrapped in and asked to you know give their thoughts or sketches or ideas for a new entryway for the school. And that got my mind turning. I mean, young, but in in different directions that I I really enjoyed kind of thinking creatively and critically of how that user experience was as a student. Um, and so that, you know, sparked the interest. And I think even later on in middle school or high school, my family had a, you know, small renovation of our kitchen. I remember just kind of witnessing my mom's experience through it all and how excited she was and with the end result. And I thought, oh, wow, this architect's really making dreams come true. And I can do that too. And separate from that, I think the the overarching kind of concept of, you know, what grounds architects and this balance between science and art and culture and economy and history and future and kind of all of these different overlapping um, purviews really captures um, where I like to thrive. And so that was uh, the initiative. And of course, I, I went on to study in university, both um, architecture and civil engineering, and then even beyond the academic experience, wanted a well-rounded experience in the industry. And so I did work in uh, construction as well as in design engineering and now of course uh, in architecture um, around the world so from Alaska to New York to the Middle East and um, a couple other stops along the way so I've had some some great exposure that really has shaped uh, views and philosophies that we practice now. It's wonderful as I work in infrastructure um, I think we have a hell of a lot in common mm-hmm. uh, so, so it's wonderful to hear and again, you know, you're just kind of unique, I feel, in this industry because you're you're not only a female architect who works works in infrastructure, but also you look at infrastructure along uh, a waterfront. What are your thoughts about you being unique in the industry? So I saw the opportunity to def- differentiate myself and and certainly a value add uh, in terms of what the the mission and the the value add that architects add to our public and to our society, looking to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public in the built environment and early on expanding and abstracting that the built environment is not limited to just buildings and really to have impact for the public. A lot of that has to do with our infrastructure and um, seeing the opportunity as an architect that it wasn't as saturated as maybe other markets and segments within the architecture profession. And so Uh, both the opportunity to kind of differentiate myself and my career and my trajectory, as well as the opportunity to impact at a different scale. Incredible. I don't know why more architects don't think like this, but that's that's another debate. I'm interested in the the company and how you chose the company name uh, Indigo River. Uh, For for those who, uh, I guess, uh, are not in your sort of local area, where did that come from? 
Uh, so most directly, it was uh, it was a picture on my phone that I was using as a temporary placeholder. We have the option when we register a business to register it under any name, but then kind of change it and have it doing business as uh, a different entity that it could be public facing. Uh, so Indigo River was a picture on my phone. Indigo is my dog and the river is my backyard. It's kind of a love of a love, something that made me happy. And it stuck, I think, because of, um, you know, reading into and, and assigning value to it. But this notion of indigo being this kind of in-between blue and purple and uh, much of what we do is kind of in-between wet and dry and water and land and built and, you know, man-made and nature and um, kind of that in-between space. And so that kind of abstracted really resonated and then river certainly something, I mean, waterfront, of course, but uh, the notion of, you know, smaller tributaries feeding a river, feeding the ocean, just kind of this larger um, you know, we have individuals that feed the company that feed larger initiatives as well. And so kind of mirroring some of our, you know, our values and projecting. Uh, so it's stuck. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a fantastic name. And I, I thought there might be some real good depth to that. That's, <laughs> that's great. And I'm also thank you as well is, is it's for our listeners, really. But can you explain what and this is WEDG is? What's Wedge. Uh, so Wedge is a national rating system and set of guidelines that creates uh, resilient, ecological, and accessible waterfronts. It's uh, put forth by Waterfront Alliance. I'll compare it to U.S. Green Building Council's LEED system. And so projects that achieve wedge certification are the gold standard for waterfront design. And this is an organization and initiative that we have, uh, many in our team have been involved with since its inception, kind of right, helping to write the first guidelines, helping to train uh, professionals that can receive the um, you know professional certification and accreditation, and then also ranking and rating projects that come through the Waterfront Alliance for the certification. That's great. My next question really to you is, you know, we need bold initiatives to stop the rising sea levels, yet you live on the water's edge, which is a personal dream of mine. I would absolutely love to. What are the greatest threats to rising sea levels and how are you tackling this with your company? Sure. So I would I would kind of re maybe reframe it that, you know, what in what ways are we vulnerable to sea level rise? And certainly we have aging infrastructure. And I think perhaps perhaps the biggest threat is inaction, um, kind of ignoring it and not addressing it. And so I'm um, not saying that every piece of infrastructure needs to be repaired. Sometimes there is a solution that is, you know, retreating from the waterfront and, you know, managing that retreat and elevating and finding new locations. But in many cases, we have invested heavily in our cities that are coastal cities, um, and it is necessary to retrofit and future-proof our assets and our infrastructure. And so, I, I again, I think the biggest threat is inaction or kind of ignoring it and thinking it's not going to become worse and at a you know, increasing rate, especially with the uh, the projections and what we're coming to find is our new reality. Can't base it on, you know, past weather, weather patterns as our code is, you know, often kind of backward looking. We really need to be a little bit more progressive with our both our code writing and our embracing of um, science and data and projections into how we practice. You are known for reframing challenges as opportunities. I think architects are really, really good at that, by the way. So can you please give me an example of your biggest opportunity that you've had? I think in my career, uh, especially as a woman in a male-dominated industry, I've hit glass ceilings time and again. Um, and, and that certainly is a challenge. And in my case, 
um, my ability to kind of reframe and and see the opportunity to launch my own company, um, to not, not be subject to some of the kind of antiquated systematic um, issues that are found often in the workplace, um, especially in, in America. And so um, that certainly identifying the opportunity that I, you know, I have developed a specialty in my career and, and seeing the opportunity to launch that as a practice and attract others uh, where I can, you know, marry my purpose and my skill set in a way that can be monetized and add value back to the public. That's fantastic. And again, I'm going to, I'm just going to drill down onto, you know, you tend to focus on water, waterfront architecture, and you do a lot of front end work, concept creation, consultation, you know, management of projects. Now, is this because you see that in these areas you can offer the most valuable and, dare I say it, the most profit? That sounds nice. And yes, certainly. But I think how I got there was I kind of worked backwards. I mean, I certainly my education was, you know, moving forward from, you know, design as an architect into engineering, the more technical. And then when I started my career, I kind of worked backwards in the building process of, uh, you know, construction and understanding what constraints are found in that design process and how they are exploited in the field. And so working in construction and then working in design engineering and then working as an architect and kind of working backwards in the design process as well. And so the what's that what that's done is given me a you know an appreciation for some of the early broad strokes decisions that are made that can completely tra- change the trajectory and success of a project. And so having um, you know, foresight as to, you know, constructability means and methods or um, engineering, uh, different, you know, technical approaches on engineering and feasibilities that really are embedded in the early stages of design. And I'd say sometimes we're brought into a project kind of midway through or late in the project and oftentimes find ourselves working with the design team to kind of backpedal on some of those early broad strokes decisions that um, we kind of laid the, the groundwork right in the beginning, just in, in terms of not only, you know, client money and time and, and resources, um, but would have been a much more efficient process. Yeah, I understand. Getting the skills of an architect as early as possible is absolutely, absolutely critical. And uh, we're going to talk about your multidisciplinary agency. It's something I talk about a lot in uh, in the UK. I, I see that as one way to have profitable and sustainable practice or a company you know not just offering one service you know can you just talk me through though you've got some very different specialist areas of people who work in your company yeah so most broadly put we have uh, architects engineers and planners and under the umbrella of architects we have you know traditionally trained building architects which i'll say none of us really have um you know focus our careers on buildings most of us have focused our careers on infrastructure uh, but then we also have landscape architects. We have naval architects that focus on floating assets and that interface between fixed and floating. Uh, under planners, we have planners that really focus on uh, climate adaptation, resiliency, sustainability. So looking at kind of a different scale of impact of, you know, particularly coastal areas. And so that certainly helps even on the, you know, more scientific and community engagement front of, of how we engage with the public and uh, different stakeholders. And then within engineering, we have kind of run the gamut uh, broadly, I'd say civil, but specifically we have, you know, geotechnical marine coastal dive engineers that will go underwater and inspect, inspect structures, environmental, I'm sure I'm missing some, but that kind of 
overarching, we're all focused on the waterfront, but we have slightly different academic backgrounds and also professional experiences. And so that I would say kind of caps out what, you know, the multidisciplinary team is, but I'll also go a step further and talk a little bit about our transdisciplinary experiences and that many of our team have not, you know, started their careers and continued all the way through just sitting behind a desk as designers. Many of our team, myself included, have worked on the contracting side or the um, the owner's rep side or, you know, in different capacities on different sides of the table. And so we have built an empathy um, you know, with regulators, with owners, with operations teams, with construction teams, with contractors to be able to speak the different languages and integrate those thought processes into our design ultimately. Yeah, that's absolutely critical to to understand your client, understand the brief and the people who you're working with in much more depth. Uh, that That's a real uh, th- great thing for success, you know, and I, I talk about money on this podcast a lot. It's called the broke architect, but we're trying to navigate ways to be more profitable and i'm just interested in specialism because the secret could be said to making good money in architecture is to specialize as most clients don't seem to want to pay for the generalist you know the generalist architect i mean would you uh, would you agree with that i'm not asking you to disclose uh, any sort of money but you're still in business Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I do think specialization, um, certainly in terms of a value proposition and it's in in the spirit of differentiating and um, not having as as heavy or thick of a competitive landscape, you know, there's room for architects to continue to specialize and kind of expand the bounds of how architects practice, how they assert their agency. And that's not to say there isn't value in still being a generalist, but I would I would compare it to, you know, a generalist that is still focused in a specific area, in a specific market. And so uh, we can look at, I mean, often the analogy is, you know, the architect as the conductor of the symphony. And we look at kind of the whole AEC industry as the symphony. Um, well, there are conductors that focus on a genre and they're still the conductor. They're still a generalist in a sense. And so that's very much how I see architects having a specialization because we're still coordinating and kind of translating the different voices at the table and and making sure that we synthesize something in the end that is meeting the needs of the the client and the public but we're doing it through a lens of specialization where we're able to go deeper in our vertical deeper in our track so we're not just um, you know taking any project that comes to us we are flexing our specialty and able to you know specialize more deeply in particular areas and if if we look at the other, you know, professional service industries. I mean, imagine if engineers were all just generic engineers and we didn't have civil or we didn't have mechanical or electrical or industrial, kind of where we'd be as a society. And similarly in medicine, if we didn't have specialists, yes, there still are general practitioners, but imagine if we didn't have a cardiologist or an oncologist, kind of where we'd be as a society and as a public without being able to go deeper in those areas and then kind of bring them back and surface them to uh, a generous that's able to communicate and translate and coordinate and quarterback kind of that um, that process and that care. Like a really good points there, Dana. Um, couldn't 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 disagree. Case okay, slightly different one here, but this is so interesting. You know, your company is part of a group that purchased a barge, fitted it out with an offshore wind training skill. Uh, you know, can you tell me more about this 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 sort of float floating teaching hub? Yeah, so I mean, certainly in terms of identifying opportunities, and uh, we're not necessarily kind of 
scattered in in you know one thing that we do we like to dabble and we like to expand and we like to explore kind of our entrepreneurial spirit as as a company and as uh, partners in, in different companies. And so the background that we have is that we are involved in, I mean, we're waterfront architects, we're marine engineers, we are involved in a great number of offshore wind endeavors. And so understanding what is going on on the development side of developing port facilities specific to offshore wind and what that timeline looks like, particularly in New York and the United States of uh, the goals that are set, the you know federal funding, the state funding in place, what the timelines are. We see the writing on the wall that the, the facilities will be set up, but it's a, it's a workforce that we haven't yet developed. And so there's a tremendous opportunity to develop that workforce. And again, being that we have you know planners in our team, we do understand kind of economic impacts of workforce development. We understand some of the biases in segregated communities and communities that are not able to access training equitably. Um, we saw the opportunity to not only, you know, the need for a training school, but the opportunity to creatively locate it on a barge that can move to different catchment areas. And so that's something that we did, you know, assertively to enable you know, equitable access to training, because that was something when we met with, you know, various unions, one of the biggest hindrances and obstacles for enabling that workforce development was access to training. And so uh, we didn't want to locate it in in one area that is, you know, not reachable to, to many. And so giving us that flexibility on a barge, we look to locate it, you know, 520 miles of shoreline in New York, as long as there's five foot of depth, we can locate it to, you know, many boroughs and many areas and many different catchment areas. Fantastic. And what 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 do people say about you know training on on a barge that's floating must be uh, incredible. Well, I mean, really, it is it's apropos for the industry. I mean, this is an offshore wind facility. Much of it is marine work, much of it is um waterfront focused or you know offshore focused. And so it's not, I mean, it's it's kind of the right step to you know, step over water onto a training facility because that mirrors, you know, the experience that many of these, whether they're wind technicians or, or whatever the roles will be, um, you know, will need to exercise in their day-to-day -day practice. Yeah, fabulous, really is. Let's talk about debt and the American system of loading yourself up with debt before you even begin work. I've I've interviewed other people on uh, on this. You know, why didn't this put you off a career in architecture because I've heard some horror stories of students of architecture being saddled with debt, $100,000 plus. And I, I kind of think the education system in America would do well by uh, disclosing kind of return on investment for various degrees. But, but that aside, I was a student athlete and I kind of filtered my search through scholarship opportunities. And so I was able to get a scholarship and go to school and that it wasn't necessarily an easy decision. I got into, you know, Ivy League schools that I would have liked to go to, but I wasn't going to take on that debt. I wasn't comfortable with that. And so I did um, ultimately go where I received scholarship. And it just in my ethos of, you know, not wanting to take on debt was willing to put in the work and juggle um, kind of a lot of different responsibilities, including, you know, academics as, you know, the first and foremost priority of, you know, performance and, and energy, but also, uh, certainly as a student athlete, kind of performing on the field. And even when I was in graduate school as a student coach for partial scholarship, I worked as a resident assistant where I was one of probably very few in the country that, you know, came out with a check from the school kind of making money during school. Wow. And so that uh, mentality for me was that I I didn't want to be in debt. I wanted to get ahead. I didn't want to um make decisions on finances early in my career that, um you know, sacrifice or, or um 
compromise those early experiences that I was able to invest in myself and in my career. It's a really good point. And then there's also that thing of if you have saddled yourself with debt and you, you feel that you have to go through and become the architect because you've you've took on that debt. So you, you've got to pay it back and get that return on investment. And um, that is a that is a whole debate. In fact, I like that. You know, could you rate degrees with the return on investment? I wonder if anyone's done it or or maybe they don't want to do it because it would scare lots of people off ever studying architecture. Um, okay, um, I've worked in infrastructure for most of my life, but why should architects consider working in infrastructure? What are the what are the big benefits uh, do you see? So architects um, in this country, at least when they become licensed, they are licensed to protect the health, safety and welfare of the public in the built environment. And I think kind of focusing in on built environment beyond just buildings is, is a key part of that. And to me, there's no greater place to assert our agency in terms of how we affect the public, because it's not just in terms of scale and impact. It's an area that affects so many and for such a long time. It's, you know, the design life for infrastructure is generally longer than, you know, private developments on a private site. And so I... I certainly see the opportunity and I've I've sat on the designer side as an engineer as well and seen kind of to my surprise and, and oftentimes disappointment, kind of the lack of an architect in the room and how I'm not knocking engineers or engineers, you know, they have their place in this world and it's a very important place, but the problem solving isn't the same as, um, you know, architects ability to foresee and design for an experiential quality. Um, and so I feel like that piece is very important in our public infrastructure and that it shouldn't just be, you know, designing for health and safety, obviously very important components, but that welfare component that architects bring to the table um, and bring early in the project only helps us as a public and as a society, ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, okay, let's peel back the layers of some bad experiences within the industry. I'm sure you've um, experienced some of this. You know, you've worked in construction, you've worked in engineering, uh, traditionally a male-dominated industry. You have also worked in the Middle East for the US government. I just wondered if you could share what your experience was like working in the Middle East compared to how it is working in the US. All around, it's not that I had a bad experience in one particular place. I think um, in this moment in time, yes, a woman in a male-dominated industry, um, it's, you know, historically, it's it's not been quick to embrace women or kind of open up and, and progress in terms of equality and equity and, and some of the some of the things that we we do focus on nowadays but I've you know I've had poor experiences from you know Staten Island to the Middle East and so it could be you know just the way that people talk to one another and I wouldn't even say that's discriminatory against women but just the way that the professional workplace is and particularly on construction sites and egos and kind of having high-headed personalities blow up um, that's frankly just unprofessional and, and not acceptable in kind of my book of how I operate um, but I've certainly been treated poorly and spoken to in tones that were unwarranted. And I've I've also, you know, worked in the Middle East where I was working with a culture that didn't 
value women as equals and wouldn't look a woman in the eye, wouldn't take orders from a woman. And so that's a different challenge because I wasn't there necessarily to change a culture, but I was there to get a job done. And so finding creative ways to work um, with other team members to ultimately, you know, get the project at hand done, kind of forced a different kind of compassion and empathy and kind of subtleness in, in management. Um, and so that's, you know, lessons learned and, and how I've, how I've grown as a professional, um, but certainly I, I think one of the things that is hardest as a woman in a male-dominated industry has to do with just kind of the trajectory of our career and our timeline and particularly women in their late 20s, early 30s of childbearing age and, you know, making the decision whether or not to put a career on hold or invest in family and that it, it's seen as a decision and that they can't be done simultaneously and mutually and with the same focus and commitment is is a challenge and that's um, that's something I think is only bettered by our communities around us supporting, you know, and valuing women in the workforce, um, as well as at the home and, and kind of equalizing the load at home for, you know, men and fathers in the home, um, that they're not, there's not an imbalance in the workforce and at home, it, you know, both need to be equalized. I have heard some some terrible stories, female architects coming into, you know, into the um, profession, starting to work with that level, huge level of debt. And um, I know the healthcare system in the US is not like the one in the UK. And um, it, it is it is very expensive to have children. But also, I think it's doubly tough being in the architecture profession, which is often low pay. It is often that. that so that timeline is really, really critical. So how can American companies support women in the wider architecture field? There's nothing really seems to be changing from from an, a UK perspective looking at America. So there, yeah, there are certainly things outside of our control in terms of, yeah, the medical healthcare system, um, you know, the cost of it, what benefits are gained from it. Certainly something that we try and do is we, you know, we provide full benefits to our employees and we're, you know, a small size company, 20 people, um, but we provide full benefits that, you know, there's, there are copays, but there's no deduction out of paychecks. And so that's, you know, peace of mind that there is a full and good quality medical as you know, quality as we could find in place. And so that's, you know, the first step, I think beyond that, there is certainly opportunity for an improvement in the childcare system. Um, because like you said, there's, you know, there's the direct hit of having debt and particularly for architects, frankly, at least in this country, the way the education system and the way the licensure process works is that you, you know, typically either have a, a five-year degree or you have an undergraduate and graduate degree. And so you think of the time spent in academia where you're not necessarily receiving an income, but you're actually, you're taking on debt. And so you're earning income kind of at a later stage of your life, and then you're working your way up from that. And so then if you then interrupt that with, you know, taking time off for maternity leave or whatever it is, there are a lot of things that start to kind of pull back um, you know, directly and indirectly your earning power, whether as a woman or just as an architect in general in the, in the general landscape. Um, and so there are systemic challenges in, in overcoming that. But, you know, what I've what I have focused on is that, you know, key differentiation of where is the market not saturated? Where can I still assert value? And so that's, you know, that helps. And then also perhaps the biggest things in terms of yeah, profitable as a company is that we we don't see profit just in terms of money, but in terms of, you know, our human capital, we invest in our people, we're looking to retain individuals for the long term and not have a revolving door. And so that, you know, that is really the long game of 
investing in our people in terms of their careers, in terms of their health and their family and not having them choose um, or, you know, feel like they need to take on a second job for a quality of life that, frankly, they deserve with, um, you know, consideration of how they're affecting and helping the public through the work that we do. You've hit on a lot there, really have, because I've interviewed someone before on the podcast who had to take a second job in a coffee shop just because the salary in architecture was so low. It's incredibly sad, but what you what you're doing at your company absolutely should be applauded. That is great to to hear. Okay, how do you believe that artificial intelligence can be used in your business to again maybe make it more profitable? I guess by efficiency. How how are you using it, or how, or how do you see that you could use it? Certainly, I think there's a you know tremendous opportunity to embrace artificial intelligence within the practice of architecture and within the belt environment and part of that part of that expands not only profit like i said in terms of you know the money and the financial aspects but in terms of you know the health and the wellness that can be uh, derived from it and so one thing that comes to mind are all of these you know disparate systems that have you know internet of things that are collecting data and who owns that data and who has access to that data and so I do believe if as an industry, if as professionals, um, there is a way to kind of centralize that data that not only the the access to the data and and how it can be used in the design process for the betterment of the public in the future, but also that efficiency that you talked about, that there are kind of menial mundane tasks that we do that can be automated and that's not our you know highest use and and you know best calling in terms of how we can impact they are tedious and they are time consuming but if we can automate those and refocus on yeah that highest and best use of our time and our impact and our ability to affect the public um and their health and their safety and their welfare um, it seems like a, a tremendous opportunity. And I do know that, unfortunately, there are many kind of in the industry, we're a slow moving industry to embrace technology in general, architecture, engineering and construction, really. The sooner we are able to kind of adopt and adapt to the technological world and leverage its tools, the better not only we will be as a profession for it, but the the greater impact we will have on the public, which is you know ultimately the end user of, of who we're serving. You're definitely not in the camp of being scared of of AI then? <laughs> nope, not scared. I'm excited by and, and hopeful for um, how, how quickly we're able to adopt and embrace. Let's get on to, to something that you've got another passion for. You are restoring your Riverside home. Um, I just want to say, well, it, it makes perfect sense, obviously, that you live by the river, seeing as that that's what you focus on. How is this restoration going? How did you find the house? I'm just interested in, I personally would love to live by a river. Uh, absolutely. So we live, my husband and I live on the Hudson River, uh, about 20 miles north of New York City. And so we do interact with the water regularly, whether it's paddle boarding or kayaking or sailing or boating or just fishing. Um, it is kind of a nice release. And, and part of the the thing that attracts me to the water is that even when you're in dense urban environments, just going to whatever that edge condition is, immediately you're connected with nature. And that's, you know, part of what's rooted in me from my upbringing, growing up in Alaska, having that and not feeling like I'm in a concrete jungle and, you know, surrounded by man-made and completely devoid of nature and, and the benefits that it, it has. Uh, so 
that's a part of it is just in our daily life we're able to interact with nature um in still close proximity to new york city um in terms of our home it yeah it's a 160 year old home and early in the pandemic we started you know little by little working on restoring a deck that was you know structurally derelict and, and needed some attention and putting on new flooring and uh, making it a habitable outdoor space that we were able to even when you know social distancing able to social distance outside but still kind of have that social interaction with friends and neighbors um, and so it kind of started on the decks and then uh, the house is made of stucco and there were a lot of cracks and it was very thick old kind of California stucco and so our thought was initially to kind of patch and paint it and as we kind of peeled back the layers we realized there was no insulation in the house and so little by little it can of worms as is you know any old aging project and so we've you know labor of love have been restoring it um trying to you know respect some of the you know, historical cues but also embrace some of the more you know technologically inefficient materials and opportunities we have at our fingertips today incredible I really want to know what are your plans for the business and maybe just your future as well Sure. So, I mean, the business continuing to grow organically, we are, um, you know, focused on climate adaptation and uh, what that means in the waterfront and our, you know, changing coastlines and coastal communities. Um, and so how that expands um, in terms of our scope and service areas and our team really is one that is, you know, expanding organically and we, while strategic and, you know, going after certain markets in certain areas, are also kind of open and and take cues from, you know, our work in terms of what it means to be flexible and adapt with needs of, of the public and, and of our communities. And so we do enjoy not, you know, doing the same thing in and out every day. We do enjoy offering uh, new tailored services to the communities that we work with. And so that's something that certainly keeps us going and I believe attracts like-minded individuals that aren't necessarily comfortable or don't prefer to be siloed in a, you know, particular area but they like to kind of expand and flex their different muscles whether it's environmental sciences and architecture or dive engineering and naval architecture um, and so we enjoy, we enjoy kind of attracting and then leveraging those skill sets to offer new new service lines thank you for being on the brook architect podcast series three really lovely speaking today dana absolutely thank you for having me jason the Brook Architect. The Brook Architect.